Less and less every year. It's become an optional thing. It's actually become one of those things in our church where we think, well, some people are, are, do, are doing that. Some people are good at that. It's just not my thing. In fact, when they, when they inter- interviewed the, the demographic of, of millennials, uh, almost half of them said they're not even sure if they should witness to Christ. So it got me thinking... Is it important that we bear witness to Jesus Christ? And if so, why? I think the Sunday school answer is yes, yes, pastor, it's important. But why? What's on the line? I, I went to Facebook earlier this week, and I asked that question. I said, the question was this, how did you come to faith in Jesus Christ? And of course, some people said I never have. But a lot of Christians answered. And without exception, they all pointed to some form of witness. Without exception. Whether it was a a sister or faithful parents that just brought them to church every week or, or a warden at a prison or a group that came in or some church or a pastor or a buddy or a friend. They all said, it was because of this witness that I was able to turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And think about your own experiences. I think about my experience, and, and it was a village of witnesses. It was all of the above. It was a constant. I was running into some, somebody somewhere who was witnessing to Jesus Christ. So the day that I came to Christ, I was by myself in a living room, uh, kneeled down at, a, at a, a couch, broken. But I called out to Christ because of all the witness that had taken place before. Otherwise... I'm a dead man. Christ cannot witness unto himself right now. He isn't here. He's at the right hand of the Father. But he has made it such that God in his sovereignty has commissioned the church to be that proclaiming witness. Without which... Man dies. So it is a high calling. It's a high calling, and it's a calling unto everybody. Everybody is called to be a witness. There might not be anything more important that we do. As we turn to this passage of Scripture this morning... We remember, it's been a couple of weeks, so we remember that, that Judas has now uh, successfully betrayed Jesus. He kisses Jesus, and there's this big commotion. Jesus ultimately offers himself up to the Sanhedrin, and then they lead him to the high priest, it says in verse 53. They take him to the high priest. He's going to now stand on trial. And this is, again, a Markheim sandwich where, where Mark begins a story, he starts another story, and then he ends the story that he originally started. and what he, he tells us that while this is taking place, everybody flees. Everybody, including the author himself, is a little kid. They all leave Jesus. But Peter, is, he, is, he is just committed 
to trying to protect Jesus. And so he follows from a safe distance. He kind of stands back. It's nighttime. He's hiding in the shadows. And he's following the Sanhedrin have Jesus, and they're, they're taking him to the, the high priest, and he follows them all the way. And they go in, and, and Mark stops in the courtyard. Now, if he would have just stayed in the shadows, he might have been okay, but he's cold. It's night. And there's a fire going on. So he steps to that fire to warm himself. And of course, when you stand before a light, what happens? Your face is illuminated. People can see you. And this becomes an opportunity for Mark that he fails at miserably. But, but before that happens, Mark begins to tell us what's taking place in this council. In 50, verse 55, he says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Let's stop there for a second and think about this. Let's just say, for example, that somebody brought you into a court, a courtroom, and sat you up front. And in in that courtroom, it's filled with people that you know, people that you've worked with in the past, people that you have bought milk from at the convenience store, people that you've driven in traffic with, people in your family. And they say this, can anybody find any fault with this person right here? Would you stand a chance? I mean, I would be doomed the second you ask the question. I don't know that I haven't transgressed against everybody at least one time, and some scale, against everybody that I've known. And here, Jesus, they're going to people who want to get him, that want to get him on something. Does anybody have anything against this guy? Has he sinned against you in any way? Have you seen him break any laws? Have you seen him do any wrong to anybody? And it's silence that can find nobody. Jesus Christ is the one who has no sin. What an incredible scene this is. And it's amazing that he has no transgressions against these people, yet they want him dead. And to this very day, Jesus Christ only offers grace and mercy and love, and yet the name of Jesus Christ is despised. What an incredible testimony that he is who he says he is. The Sanhedrin is not messing around. They want him dead. This is their opportunity. They have been trying for months and months and months to capture him and bring him to trial, they finally have him. So they turn to false witness. Now, in a court, if somebody gives a testimony or a witness to somebody, it's no good unless somebody else can back that witness. There needs to be at least two testimonies for it to stick. And so people are given false witness, one after the next, but it's not sticking because there's nobody that can, that can you know, back that up with any kind of sufficiency. They do not agree. This is, there is plenty of false witness of Jesus Christ today, amen? Tons of false witness. I don't know if you're familiar with pop atheism, but there is claims against Jesus Christ in, in pop atheism, just YouTube atheist, and listen to what they say about Jesus Christ. 
98% of it just isn't true. It's false. It's false. They want to see Jesus. They're not trying to see the true Jesus. They're trying to see a Jesus that they want to see. And, and church, it isn't just... Sadly, it's not just those who don't believe who bear false witness to Jesus. It's the church, too. You know, Christ comes out and he cleans his church out. And sometimes we witness this, and, and I believe we really have just recently witnessed this. That, that so many self-proclaiming Christians who go to church on Sunday never once dared step out into their neighborhood to proclaim his name or to bear witness to who he was, yet had no problem destroying Thanksgiving dinner to talk about Donald Trump. Had all kinds of boldness when it comes to the Constitution and completely and utterly abandoned standing for the Bible. And what we see there is that their true God is not Jesus Christ. And the false witness is, is that it made a lot of people, and I talk to these people, who believe truly because of these false witnesses that Jesus Christ wears a MAGA hat. Now, I don't care what your opinion is of Donald Trump, positive or negative. It doesn't have anything to do with the kingdom of God and the king of that kingdom, Jesus Christ. Amen? And so they're exposed. We should pray for their souls and worry about where they end up. Because Trump doesn't save anybody. Nor does Biden. Nor does any politician. Nor does any political agenda. I'm not saying that these things aren't important. That we shouldn't understand them and take a stance on those things. But to show more boldness, more loyalty, more fervor for those things than the Bible... It exposes our hearts. False witness. And then in verse 58, what do they do? They, they misquote, they twist what Jesus says. It says in verse 50, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Did he say that? <laughs> he didn't say that. Of course, it is illegal. They could have gotten him if you threaten to damage the temple, you're in big trouble. It's illegal. You can't do that. But he didn't. He was talking about his own body. But they have twisted Scripture and turned Scripture the way Satan does. Remember Satan? Did God really say you can't even touch that fruit? No. (laughs) He didn't. You're twisting his words. You're manipulating his words. And how often do we see scriptures be twisted and manipulated? Poor exegesis, no hermeneutics, no care for what it actually says. Using scripture to support my own agenda. Backing what I have to say instead of submitting to what God actually said. There are whole false religions that exist right now. Deterring people from the real Christ based on the twisting and manipulation of Scripture. It's the work of Satan. So we must be careful. We must be careful 
uh, not only to stand up against false witnesses of Christ, but also that we are not being false witnesses ourselves. That we are standing for the real Jesus and the real word of God as it is written. But even with their false testimony, even with all of that, and the twisting of Scripture, and all of that, none of it stands because they can't find anybody who agrees or backs it up. And so the Sanhedrin, it's not going well for them. They're getting desperate. So they turn to Jesus. They say, it says in verse 60, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? This is, this is kind of a, an aside, but we have to realize that this whole thing is highly illegal. Highly illegal. Almost everything they're doing is breaking their own law. The Sanhedrin is breaking their own law. The Sanhedrin, the upholders of the law, the foremost experts of the law, the zealots of the law, is breaking their own law in an attempt to try to kill Jesus Christ. Is this not of Satan? Can we not see this? How satanic and evil this is? You can't, it's against the law to turn and make a witness, make, a, make, a, make somebody uh, testify against themselves. You can't do that. That's not legal. There, there's several things. We could, I could give a whole sermon on all the things that they're doing that's illegal. I just name a few so we get an idea. Uh, first of all, in Jewish law, the cap, uh, capital, and in the capital case, if you bear false witness, you yourself are put to death. And the Sanhedrin is encouraging false witness, let alone not punishing it. No legal proceeding, none, whether it's capital or not, can take place at night. We know this is at night. The Sanhedrin themselves could not bring charges, and yet that's exactly what they do. They brought the charges, and they're just looking for witnesses to support it. Completely illegal. If this was anybody else, it would not be admissible. Uh, capital offenses could not be tried uh, during this, on the day before Sabbath or a high holy day. Passover is the next day. So even if this was during the day, they wouldn't have courts. It wouldn't be held. It's against the law. It's not admissible. And on and on and on and on. I mean, there's just, we, again, I can go on and on. All the illegal things that are taking place here to get Jesus this is why, again, it is so important. It is important that when we look at a, a, a crumbling government, a government who just who hates God, and even in Canada, I mean, on this day, as, as we sit here, Canada has passed laws against trying to help uh, people who feel like they are homosexual to not be that. Conversion therapy is what they call it. But in the wording of, of the law, the concern is, is that if a parent or a pastor even just proclaims truth onto that person, not necessarily even sticks them into uh, a conversion therapy, that they could face up to five years in prison. As we speak, that's passed today. So it's important. It's important that we stand up for law. It's important that we vote. It's important to all those things. But we see right here 
that regardless of those things, laws do not protect us. Laws did not protect Jesus Christ from persecution. And laws ultimately will not protect us from persecution. Our hope cannot be in a government or a system or a law or a politician. We can fight for those things, but our hope should not be in those things. We should know full well that because they hated our Savior, they're going to hate us. Law or no law? Law or no law? And then Christ sets the perfect example. See, Christ is on earth here so he can bear witness to who he is. And he sets this perfect example in verse 62. And Jesus said, I am. I am. That's how he begins. We all know what that means. He is claiming at that moment to be God. The God of Moses. When Moses says, who shall I say sent me? You tell him, I am sent you. Jesus there is claiming to be co-eternal, co-creator, co-equal with God. He goes on to say, and you will see the Son of Man. So here he claims to be not only God, but the Messiah. Everybody in that courtroom, that illegal nighttime courtroom, would have instantly recognized that is a claim to be the Messiah. And he goes on to say, you will see the the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power, coming with clouds of heaven. What's he saying there? You think you're my judge? Human? Created? You think you're my judge? You're not my judge. I'm your judge. I'm your judge. Jesus is no longer on trial. Amen? This is a one-time thing. He comes and he is judged by man so that he can... Be the trans, he can take the transgressions of sin that he might die in our place, in our iniquity. But when he comes back, he is the judge. Nobody judges Jesus. Nobody gets to tell, nobody gets to say whether or not Jesus is God or who Jesus is. He is their judge. So there's this perfect testimony to who he is. He is God. He is the Messiah, the one that takes away the sins of the world. And he is the judge. Perfect example. In the face of death. And so what happens? He tears his, his garments, the, the high priest, which is a symbol of blasphemy. And they begin to, to mock him. They say, prophesy. Prophesy. Prophesy, they're mocking him for being a false prophet, for claiming to be a prophet. And the ironic thing about that is, is as they're mocking him for being a false false prophet, one of his prophecies is coming true. In Peter, while all of this is going on in the court, in the courtyards, we've got Peter warming himself by the fire. His face illuminated by the fire. Somebody recognizes him, says, you're one of Jesus's. You're one of Christ's. And he said, no, no, I'm not. 
And then again in verse 69, yeah, you are. I can tell by the way you talk, by your accent, you've got to be one. And he says, no, I'm not. And then again in verse 70, but he denied it again. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you're one of them. You are the Galilean. And then in 71 he says, but he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man who you speak of. He invokes his curse on himself and, and, and says, I don't know who this guy is. This is a very, very uh, sailor thing to do. This is a very fisherman thing to do. This is what fishermen would do if they were to snap a line or they would break a, a net. They would invoke a, a curse on themselves. It was a very worldly thing to do. It wasn't a very spiritual thing to do. He then presented himself to these people as somebody who's worldly, fits in with them, just like you. Not separate, not holy, not set apart, not of a different kingdom, of this world, so that you won't recognize the fact that I belong to Jesus Christ. He denies Jesus without ever even using his name. He is not facing trial. His life is not on the line. He's trying to escape embarrassment and persecution. He's saving his own neck and his own reputation. And he wholly and fully denies Jesus, not only with his mouth, but in his actions. And he weeps bitterly. He hears that crow go the second time and he weeps bitterly. Great sorrow. He thinks he just denied his friend, a friend unto death that he will never see again. He has failed utterly. Remember that Peter isn't just Peter in the Bible. That the twelve disciples represent the church. And Peter represents the rock. He is the chief. He is the foundation of the church. And so here we see the the chief apostle, the rock and the foundation, deny wholly Jesus Christ to the point of bitter weeping. So what do we learn from this? What do we learn from all of this? Well, Peter's example is a warning to his disciples then. In that time, of course, Mark being somebody who was writing to Romans would have been writing to people with all kinds of persecution, all kinds of opportunity to bear witness, true witness to Christ, and probably failing at a lot of the turns, trying to avoid persecution themselves. And so this is a wonderful reminder to them, and then we can bring that right into our worlds today, a wonderful reminder to us that faithful witness to Jesus is most important and most easily betrayed. Amen? Am I the only one that fails at this? Am I the only one who has weeped bitterly over an opportunity to stand out in the crowd, to be the one who represented Jesus amongst those that are going to hell, and then go home and just 
what did I do? Can we not all relate? There's times, man, there's times I relate to Jesus. There's times I do, I do stand out. I, I, I am that guy. I say something when it's uncomfortable. I lose friendships for the Lord Jesus Christ. But then there's times where I'm Peter. I, I'm Peter. Being a witness to Christ is on the decline in the United States of America. And, and there's a few reasons for that, and Barna gives a couple of reasons. And one is the growing hostility. We know that we are not living in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s anymore. Even the 70s and the 80s. Into the 90s, certainly into the 2000s, there is a noticeable growing hostility to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's greater consequence and greater persecution from our perspective as Americans to witness. We're more liable to lose friends, to be the outcast, to be tossed out, to lose jobs, to not be hired. Those, that's certainly true. The other reason is that there's more distractions. There's a lot more distractions. Things are grabbing at our attention left and right. There's opportunities being open and presented for us on a daily basis that we just don't witness or see because we're distracted. But there's a third reason. I'd like to submit a third reason. And it's because we fail and we weep and we're discouraged and we give up. We just give up. I'm not good at that. I leave that to the pastor. Your pastor is admitting that he's (laughs) as awful at it as you are sometimes. I'll leave it to the outreach team. I'll leave it to Willie. But we're all called to that. Christ, while Christ provides us with a perfect example, we see in Peter that not even the best are immune to shrinking. We should take comfort in that. See, what, what Satan would want us to do is to just experience this portion of Peter's experience and not experience what John chapter 21 tells us. With so many Christians end here, they get discouraged, they beat themselves up, and they don't try again because they think that they have failed beyond grace. So they don't even try again. But then we're reminded in Romans, right, that where, where sin is increased, grace abounds all the more. Grace abounds all the more. We know the story. We know the story that Jesus Christ, he resurrects and he goes to the disciples and then he pulls Peter aside, the rock aside, one-on-one. And what does he tell him three times? What does he ask him? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? A chance to atone for each time that he denied him. And what does he do? What does he tell him each time? Feed my sheep. Tend to my flock. He reestablishes them. Get up. You're loved. My grace is sufficient. 
You failed. I remember it no more. From here on out, move forward and proclaim the good news, the gospel. This is the Great Commission. This is what he left us with. And remember, when he left us, he didn't just put it on ourselves. He didn't just say, go do this. And I'll be watching. I'll be taking notes. And when you fail, I'll remind you of it. No, he says, go do this. And what does he say? He goes, and, and behold, I am with you always. I am with you always. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but this is a sermon that I think needs to be preached consistently in this day and time across all of this nation. They're talking about tsunamis rising up in the West Coast on this nation. This nation clearly has headed into judgment of God. Amen? And so with that, the hostility, the movement of Satan will be on the rise. And we must be willing to be true witnesses of Jesus Christ, true witnesses in a land of false witness. People who are bold in proclamation in a land of people who just want to silence you. We must. It's what we are called to do. And what's on the line is literally people's souls. If I don't witness, how will they know? If I don't witness, how will I know? If they didn't witness to you. You think about that person that witnessed to you. They probably were denied 20, 30, 40 times. Thank God they didn't stop at that 41st and said, ah, I'm just not good at this. They hung in there and bared witness one more time. So there's this encouragement, this command, this call to step out into the witness of Jesus Christ, knowing that our flesh is weak while our spirits are willing. And did not stop and listen to the lies and the condemnation of Satan when we fail. But to run to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and allow him to embrace us and restore us and remind us that that sin is not even remembered. That we can go back out there as a witness and a testimony to everything that he is. Amen. Heavenly Father, God, I, we pray for wisdom and strength in these trying and difficult times. So many distractions. So many distractions around. <clears throat> God, we pray that you would keep us from those distractions. God, not to say that those things aren't important, but they are not of the utmost importance. What is the, the utmost importance is you. And bearing witness to you, a true witness. Father, help us to remember that. Keep the blinders on. Keep ourselves fixated on the cross. God, give us hearts. Give us hearts that, of, of servants to the point of, of death. That we love the gospel. And that we might love you more than our paychecks, our comfort, our security. 
our reputation, our friendship, our parents, our brothers, our sisters, and our children. That we love you and the gospel more than those things. Because we see the truth in those things, and the power in those things, and the life in those things. All else is death. There isn't anything more important than you in this gospel. God, help us to remember that. And help us to look and see for opportunities. It doesn't mean that we always got to proclaim a three-point sermon to everybody that we meet. But maybe we can ask our waitress this week as we sit down to, to dine. Hey, before I go, can I just, how can I be praying for you? Maybe when we run into the grocery store and we're getting checked out, how can I be praying for you? Just opportunities to witness that you are somebody who loves and serves and desires to see this community saved. That you like that we like you would desire that no sheep stays lost. That those that belong to you would come into your folds. We see and we see you do this to a perfect example. But help us to follow that example. Awaken our spirits. Give us the power and the strength and the words and the actions and the opportunity. May we love you more than life itself. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.